Several weeks ago, we began a journey to look together at the famous Beatitudes of Jesus, what we have called the Attitudes of Jesus. And I contended at the beginning of the series that these words of Christ were particularly significant for us in our times because they were calling forth a countercultural set of orientations desperately needed in our day. We began by talking about the uh, claim of Jesus that, that the blessings, the favor of God are showered upon the poor in spirit. Such an odd idea in a world that is always pressing us towards the kingdom of thingdom, uh, pu pushing us towards defining our lives in terms of the muchness we have. Jesus says instead, no, the way of God is one of open hands turned up towards the one from whom all blessings flow. We talked about the uh, blessings that come to the more mournful people and how odd that was really as we thought about it because we live in a world that is moving so fast that we're always rushing past the pain. Uh, we're moving from one crisis to the next. We don't often stop to, to, to grieve the losses of our life or those of the people around us. We just press on and Jesus invites us to a different way to be those who mourn with those who mourn, who feel the significance, the goodness of life and are able to grieve when aspects of it are lost to us. We explored uh, along the way other beatitudes that encouraged us and comforted us, I hope, that brought assurance to us in uh, some aspect of our daily journey. But today, we're going to talk about a beatitude that actually shakes us up. If some of the Beatitudes move in the tone of comfort, this one moves in the tone of challenge. We're going to look today at the words of Jesus when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They will be filled. I think this is a particularly challenging uh, word to us simply because there is prevalent in America today a conception of spirituality that I imagine the folks at the Miller Brewing Company might brand Christianity light, L-I-T-E. I'm talking about an understanding of religion that may taste great but is actually less filling than the gospel is supposed to be. I'm speaking of a brand of Christianity that may seem slightly more healthy than the brew that the world is serving up, but which actually does not pack the spiritual nutrients necessary to truly nourish your soul or build up your capacity to live to the fullest in this life as God actually would want it to be. One of my uh, former mentors in life, a Baptist pastor by the name of John Lavender, sums up something of this in these terms. Apparently afraid of antagonizing a sleeping church, far too many pulpits have meekly mumbled the message, you must repent to some degree and be converted in some measure or you'll be damned to some extent. We have lost sight writes Lavender, of God's justice. We have rejected the notion of his wrath. We have diluted his righteousness and sentimentalized his love. For the great white throne of heaven, we've substituted a rocking chair, in effect. 
For the omnipotent one who breathed the universe into being by the word of his power, we have substituted a doddering gray-haired grandfather. Nothing wrong with gray hair, I want to underline. Now, I'm hoping that you haven't sensed that you have been served that form of junk food from the pulpits to which you've attended recently, but because this particular way of coming at spirituality, this way of conceiving even of God is so stubbornly prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ today, and because Jesus says that it is actually those who sincerely and passionately hunger and thirst after genuine righteousness who will be favored with the infilling that all of us need, let me dare to pose today just three questions to you. Three questions designed to help you and and me assess the extent to which we are really hungering and thirsting in the way that Jesus is describing here. The first question is, do you recognize how costly discipleship is? Do you recognize that being a follower of Jesus Christ means paying a price, submitting to owning a cost? Author Wilbur Rees famously confessed the view that some people unconsciously have about the whole approach they have with God. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please, writes Reese. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to to make me love a person of a different color or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I just want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy just $3 worth of God, please. It can be easy to develop the view unconsciously, bit by bit, that what God really has in mind for you and me is actually just a little bit of fine-tuning of our personalities. God is really just seeking a little bit of our leftover time, talent, and treasure. God is just too gracious and kindly to really be interested in pushing us beyond our comfort zones. Gordon MacDonald says that the prevalence of this view explains why in the time of Jesus, when the crowd around him got too large, Jesus would always sharpen the blade of his teaching. He would make it clearer and clearer that there was a dramatic cost to discipleship. It was almost as if he were saying the size of this crowd suggests that you have not understood the challenge I'm presenting to you. This call to die to yourself. I don't think so many of you would be showing up if you really understood the hard edge of of the teaching, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So let me give it to you another way. And when Jesus finished restating his message, many would then leave because they finally understood, and I'm quoting McDonald here, that no one can remain in the presence of Christ and be merely a very nice person. The Apostle John tells us in the 
text we read a moment ago that the crowd who first followed Jesus got that message. On hearing what Jesus said, many of his disciples remarked, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back, the scriptures say, and no longer followed him. If you and I had been in that initial crowd, I wonder, would, would we have been among those who walked away or those who stayed? What would we have done when Jesus began to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Would we have understood he was not talking about cannibalism, but something actually more threatening than that in a sense? Would we have understood that he wants to replace the things that we've been stuffing into that empty place in our souls with himself alone, with Christ alone, would, have, would that have been something we would have stayed around to really live into when we understood that he was calling us to hunger and thirst after righteousness instead of the riches that we do when we clued into the concept that Jesus' understanding of health doesn't mean just a, a change in our cuisine, but actually the full transformation of every aspect of our character. that he was out to totally renovate every house, every room in the house of our life, would we have stayed behind to continue to journey with him? Dallas Willard puts the truth in this way. He says, one cannot be a disciple of Christ without forfeiting things normally sought in life. And one who pays little in the world's coinage to bear Christ's name has reason to wonder, has actually reason to stop and ponder where or he or she actually stands with God. But what those who turn back from following Jesus Christ don't seem to realize, writes Willard, is that the cost of non-discipleship is actually far greater than the price that we pay to walk with Jesus. Non-discipleship, writes Willard, costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, a faith that sees everything in the light of God's governance, his overriding governance for good, it costs us hopefulness, the kind that we need to stand firm in the most discouraging circumstances. It costs us the power to do what is right and to withstand the forces of evil in our age. In short, non-discipleship costs us exactly that abundance of life that Jesus came to bring us. So when Jesus grabs us by the lapels, when Jesus jabs us in the chest, when Jesus presses us beyond our comfort zone, as he does in this call to righteousness, it's tough love speaking. It's because he doesn't want us to miss out. It's because he doesn't want us to settle for spirituality light that cannot possibly do the good work in us and through us for the world that Jesus longs to do. Which brings us to a second important question. First one, 
Do you understand and have you embraced the cost of discipleship? Second question, do you see life in terms of how much Christ fills you? Is that the defining lens by which you look at and evaluate your life? Jesus puts it this way, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. This is a gory teaching. This is almost an upsetting teaching. And it's a very intentionally upsetting teaching. Because ever the master teacher, ever the the master hyperbolic teacher, Jesus gives us this most graphic image, this most upsetting image to shake us out of our complacency. To, to make us think in new categories and new ways. Jesus is not actually, of course, talking about cannibalism. He is talking about changing the, the diet, the basic source that we depend upon to define health, to find health in our lives. These words would have made perfect sense later on to the disciples who had celebrated with Jesus the Last Supper, or what we call the Lord's Supper. What Jesus is trying to say here is that you are truly alive, you will be truly alive only to the extent that the life of Jesus, the life of God himself, has filled us up. A Christian is someone who no longer measures health by the vitality of his or her career or the elasticity of his or her skin. By eternity's measure, a 92-year-old lying in a hospital bed on the last day of her life is healthier if she is a follower of Jesus than a non-believing athlete in their 20s in the apparent prime of life. I had a chance to see this contrast this past week. I was with a 92-year-old on the last day of her life. And to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit brimming and flowing out of her, and I thought to myself, she's going home to be with the Lord today, but she's healthier than the group of men I just came from, some of whom don't know Jesus, but can pump iron like this woman would never be able to do. How do you define health in your own life? Do you understand and approach life in these terms? And if you do, then the third and the last question will also make a great deal of sense to you, even if the answer is a little bit painful. Are you faithful to Christ? Are you faithful to Jesus, to his calling? Author Donald Miller writes in his book, Blue Like Jazz, the trouble with deep belief is that it costs something. And there is something inside of me, some selfish beast, some subtle thing, he writes, that doesn't like that truth at all. 
because it carries responsibility. And if I actually believe these things that I talk about in faith, then I have to do something about them. I used to say that I believed, for example, says Miller, that it was important to tell people about Jesus, but I never did. My friend Andrew very kindly explained to me that if I, if I do not introduce people to Jesus, then I don't believe Jesus is an important person. It doesn't matter what I say. If it isn't translating into action, it isn't a core belief. Because core beliefs always become acts of faithfulness to those beliefs. Or at least most of the time. So do our actions in worship and after worship each and every week, do they show that we are faithful to Christ? Well, how do you measure faithfulness, you might ask. Dan, how are you measuring faithfulness? And I would say to you, well, how do you measure it in every other area of your life? How do you evaluate it? For example, if your car started once every three or four tries, would you regard it as reliable? Uh, If your paper boy skipped uh, delivery every Monday and Thursday, would you say he's trustworthy? If you bagged work a few days a month because you didn't really feel like going, would you expect others to regard you as a faithful employee? If your refrigerator stopped working for a day or two every now and then, would you say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If you issued a major financial grant to somebody else and you asked that the other person only pay you 10% of whatever they make with that huge uh, trust that you have given them, and that person rarely sent you more than a fraction of that, can you hear yourself saying, oh, that's fine, one or 2% is close enough? We expect, I think, a fairly high standard of faithfulness from other things and from other people. Uh, I just hired an ant control guy at my house. If I see an ant this week, how fast is that guy going to get a call? That he didn't keep the promise that, that these things were going away. And given that attitude that we so often have in terms of our expectations of the faithfulness of others, how is it then that we can almost pardon others, sort of read scripture and kind of pray, sort of care for the needy, occasionally worship, nearly witness, slightly sacrifice, and call that faithfulness? There were a lot of people like that in the crowd that followed Jesus that day. We're not alone. There were all these people that I I would call buffet believers. They would pick this part of Jesus' teaching to chew on, and then they would leave aside that one because it was just too hard to digest. There were many who liked to sip and to taste God now and then, but who did not really actually have an appetite for action in his name when the pressure was really on them. We believe in you, Jesus, they said. Oh, we believe in you. And Jesus said, yet there are some of you who do not believe in the core belief sense of believing. 
Jesus said in return. And John's gospel adds, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. There are many, said Jesus, who will cry, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, who, will not, who are not walking in the kingdom of God because they did not do what my Father in heaven asked them to do. You have to be thinking about now, boy, did Dan get up on the wrong side of the pulpit today or what? I'm so glad I invited my neighbors to church with me today, you know? Uh, I tell you these things for the same reason that the apostle uh, Peter confesses. It is because as hard as these teachings are, these are the words of eternal life. These words of challenge, of summons, of calling into the way of the kingdom are the words of tough love that lead to an even more glorious kind of life. And if living out our faith is not particularly costly to us in the way of change or sacrifice, if we can't look back over the past year and point to some things about our character and our use of resources and our pattern of handling conflict that's different because of Jesus, if our ultimate sense of our own personal health is measured by anything other than the growth of the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit in us, if we're fairly comfortable with our current level of faithfulness, seeing relatively little room for actual improvement, then chances are we are practicing Christianity light. We're dining on Christianity light. And not eternal life. I don't say that to shame any of us or lay an obligation on any of us. I say it simply to invite us to evaluate Honestly, our level of spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst to be right with God. As John Ortberg has frequently said, no one ever becomes a true disciple of Jesus because they think they ought to. You've got to want it. You've got to want to have a life like Jesus. You've got to long for it. And the only way you're going to pursue his righteousness, his kind of health in life, is because deep inside of you is this insatiable longing. So how hungry, how thirsty are you to be made right, to do right, to see this world aligned with right? That's what righteousness ultimately means. What's your true core attitude? What is it? Friar and author Simon Tugwell once observed, it is the desire for God which is the most fundamental appetite of all. It's an appetite that we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we deny that it is there, we shall, in fact, only divert it to some other object or range of objects, and that will mean that we, we invest in some creature or creatures or thing the full burden of our need for God, a burden which no creature or thing can actually bear, can actually carry, can actually fulfill. The good news, says Jesus in his Beatitudes, 
is that those with a genuine appetite for God will be supplied with the grace and the power and the providence that they most long for. And that those who long for God's goodness above all else shall find themselves receiving it. Not because they've earned it, but because God so delights in giving his good gifts to those who know that they desperately need his infilling. So hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you will, says Jesus, be filled. Please pray with me. Grow it in us, God. Give us a holy restlessness to be filled with what you alone can supply. Wean us away from all of the substitutes that we stuff inside of ourselves to fill the hole that only you can fill. And enable us, Lord God, by our faithfulness to bear witness to the life of your kingdom in such a way that the heads of others are turned, that the hearts of others are awakened, and that more and more people come to find the banquet over which you preside. For we pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.